0: Music I am here with Samantha Ori, who is the founder of Ouroboros Group based in Boston. And this is gonna be an interesting discussion. I don't even know where to start with all the things that she has in her life, aside from what she does uh, day to day with the private equity life. Um, So Samantha, let's just kind of start off on first off, what is Ouroboros Group? And then we can dive into your your life story.
1: Sure, Um, so everyone always asks me, what Ouroboros Group means? And I think it's a valid question, um, so I will answer it. It means um, infant returns in Greek. And that's one thing that we really wanted to get across, you know, when we started the fund um, to our investors, is that, hey, we're gonna, we're gonna keep uh, producing for you. So,
0: yeah. What kind of uh, for, uh, companies do you focus on? Can you give a little bit of high level of, you know, how many portfolio companies, what uh, the investment criteria is, uh, et cetera?
1: Sure, absolutely. So we invest in three verticals, in healthcare, manufacturing and services, and the consumer sectors, uh, food and beverage, retail. Uh, Typically, we're looking for companies around four to five million in EBITDA, and we're geographically agnostic. Uh, We actually love when companies are coming from uh, Europe and Asia because we feel like we can actually make a difference bringing them into the U.S. Um, we ideally love when management stays on. Uh, that's kind of a must for us. We're, we're looking for very strong management teams. We almost operate as venture capitalists in that sense, where we're really putting a bet on the management team who is looking to maybe take some chips off the table, but still looking for another bite of the apple into the future.
0: Is there a portfolio company we can kind of talk through and just kind of learn about the growth story and just kind of how you interacted with them and how, how the, uh, the relationship has kind of evolved?
1: We actually started, it was kind of an accidental start um, to Ouroboros um, before we even had the name. Uh, I was brought by um, my, my first partner that would worked with Nate. He um, brought me this company. I was still actually at my last private equity shop. And he said, you know, this is an incredible deal. Um, I would love a partner to run this. I have more of the entrepreneurial exposure and I can help bring the capital, um, but I really do not, you know, have the the leverage buyout you know, side of things. Things. could you come and you know partner with me on this and I was so compelled I left my shop basically to do this and I had no idea that I was even going to create a company uh, you know from this but uh, about it took, I think about maybe five months to close the deal it's called CNW um, electrical contracting and uh, I remember talking to the CEO who said that they had spoken with a lot of other candidates but liked our spunk liked what we were going to do post-close with the company, especially with um, my partner's uh, robust, um, you know, operating ability. So it was just a really nice fit. And when we closed the company, um, we had, you know, just a lot of things that, a lot of low-hanging fruit that we could really work with, uh, especially on the financial side of things. So we helped them kind of clean up their books, kind of create a, a kind of checks and balances and systems and, hey, there's some money hanging out here. Maybe we could make sure that this is accounted for so that we're really, you know, getting everything down to the bottom line that needs to be gotten there. And we can also talk about maybe how to expand your sales platform as well so that we can, um, you know, help get new opportunities, uh, you know, for your team. Um, But I would say that we've learned a lot about electrical contracting. Um, You know, it was almost like we were being taught by the CEO. And at the same time, we were kind of teaching him about, you know, things that he wanted to make better with the company, you know, and here we are you know two and a half years later um you know, the company is growing uh, just like a weed they're growing tremendously and um you know we're looking eventually probably to do um more of a uh a roll-up strategy with them being the platform um we're really in no hurry though um we're really into organic growth and you know i would say that for them they during covid it's a challenging time um but they actually would save them was they're heavily diversified in what they do um they work for a lot of um news organizations like channel five and they'll come replace the bulbs so it's high recurring revenue and the media has been very prevalent in covid but they also do a lot in healthcare. care um, so they actually maintain all of the mri machines um, at boston medical um, you know for example and there's high recurring revenue people get sick people still need them you know to come in and repair they've just been you know doing very well a lot
0: of independent yeah. sponsors who listen into this are going through similar um, similar experiences where I got a deal, I, I found an operator, and now I need to raise the capital for this. And, you know, it'd be interesting to kind of hear kind of your experience uh, raising the capital for that. And, you know, a couple years later now, maybe how your perspective has evolved on that.
1: It's a great, it's a great question. First deal is always the hardest, um, and it's the hardest part of doing the deal is the money, Um, especially, you know, when you're not independently wealthy and you can't just put money in yourself. It's fortunate because Nate already had a roster of folks that were interested in this deal to do, and he syndicated the deal from seven high net worth individuals, some family office, um, and just some kind of friends and family, and then others um, were just individual high net worth investors. So we basically had to do some convincing that we were going to be able to take this on and we were going to make this successful for them because it was, you know, a significant amount of money that they, that they put forth. And you're really, um, in the first deal, you're really investing in, in us. It's very meta. You're investing in the company, but you're really investing in the, to be GP, um, to do this deal. We sat there on phone call after phone call and we gave them incredible deal economics, uh, coupled with a 5% dividend. Per year, Um, and we also talked to them a lot about um, you know the waterfall of distributions, who's going to get their distributions first, um, you know, and just in general, just you know how we're going to um, uh, basically um, make this as easy and painless for them um, as possible, so that they don't lose faith in us. And as it turns out, you know, we're starting to you know get to the point where we can begin to think about returning capital, you know, and also have you know paid off a substantial amount of the debt on um, the. The debt side and the buyout which is also very helpful to them because they say oh gosh you're making progress this is great so once you have that um you know we took a haircut obviously on the fees um we didn't charge a closing fee we were just so happy that someone wanted to do this deal believed in our vision and knew that we were going to take this to the next level that um, that was really the reward. So now thinking about it, you know, almost three years later, you know, now we're thinking of, you know, fees, we're thinking of structure, we're thinking of, um, you know, management fees, because we have a nine person team now, um, you know, and I had brought on, I brought on a healthcare um, partner a little bit later on in the game. And we really wanted to make this just a giant private equity shop that was going to, um, you know, have committed capital eventually, and wanted to go on that track. So we've gotten much more aggressive in, in the way that we kind of think about these fees.
0: What are some of the maybe early mistakes when you were just getting this started or key learnings kind of reflecting back on the past couple of years um, that you've seen through your journey in the independent sponsor model?
1: When we first started, um, I made so many mistakes on the first deal. It was, a wonder that we closed, honestly. Um, You know, I think that we were all sitting there going, oh gosh, like what do we do, you know, from here? Um, One big thing is really communication between the CEO and ourselves. Now everything we do is proprietary. We don't go through bankers um, ever. We have our own pipeline of opportunities. But at the time, this was kind of, this is banked. This is a bank-led deal. And um, there was kind of a communication disconnect between ourselves and the CEO because we were kind of relying on the banker. Um, so there was a lot of things kind of as you ink the purchase agreement, you know, towards close that, you know, you're like, um, okay, who gets the accounts receivable, how much, you know, cash on the balance sheet should be left. And then you're having to explain this to somebody, you know, who isn't in the financial community who may not understand the implications of what you're doing post-close. So that was a big challenge was kind of the, the communication barrier um, that we had to start to, you know, learn how to manage ourselves the bank team, and also the, the management. And then I'd say the other big challenge was really convincing people that we could do this. Um, we were really young at the time. We were, I think uh, my partner at the time was, I was probably 26 and I was 28. Um, you know, so it was, we were young, um, you know, and we had robust track records from other firms that we were at prior, but we had never gone out on our own to do this. So you had, we had to, we had to appear much older than we were. So people wouldn't, they didn't meet us in person at first. They just heard a on the phone, and they expected us to maybe be in our late 30s, early 40s. Then they met us, and we looked like kids. So we really had to start by just having a phone conversation to hook them in. It took about six months all in to close. We actually closed in February. Um, so we ran the deal heavily in December, which is a very hard month to, to do a deal, as you can imagine. So we found the deal originally. So my partner had found the deal um, through another colleague of his, and we were floating, you know, kind of the idea of, of a couple different deals. And then he had, you know, said, you know, this deal is probably the one, you know, that is probably gonna get the most traction on the capital end. And I said, well, let's do this one. Let's go for this. And this is the one that we could grow the best. So after doing a little bit of modeling, this this was our guy basically. And it turned out that it was banked basically. So it was from a friend of his that was also um, kind of a bank led deal. So it was almost like a hybrid and we agreed to pay him obviously because that's the yep. right thing to do.
0: Like how how did you Go down this path? What's your background? And maybe we can kind of do the high-level career overview, and then sure. we can dive in deeper.
1: Sure. Um, so, I have a very untraditional finance background. Um, I actually went to art school. I went to Parsons School of Design, um, and I was supposed to be a graphic designer and/or starving artist on the street selling you pretty paintings. That took a turn. I was at Prada Corporate, and I I liked it, but I decided that I liked buying handbags more than I liked being a part <laughs> of the uh, the corporate entity that um, I would I would be a part of. Um, but one thing I really loved was the financial aspect, I think that um, that got me excited. I love the idea of, you know, balancing books and, you know, thinking about, you know, how many items you have to you have to sell to, you know, get your revenue to, you know, XYZ. So um, I had a lot of friends who were at NYU and they were doing their traditional Goldman Sachs, Bank of America internships and said, you know, why don't you give us a whirl? So I um, basically begged um, at, uh, Needham and Company in the summer of 09 to give me an internship. And I think they looked at me like, okay, like, I mean, we'll give you a shot if you want, but you know, you don't seem to have the the correct backgrounds. And I said, you know, I'll work hard. I'll work really hard. I promise. So that summer, um, they did a consumer deal. I was actually in the semiconductor and tech group, which I knew nothing about, of course. Um, but they did it, the one consumer deal and it was called Zipcar. And I worked on Zipcar that summer, um, you know, on the side because they said, "Oh, you're a consumer." You know, I think that this would be a good marriage for you. And the uh, the CEO is a woman, so it's kind of a nice like entry into finance for you. And they were really right. I mean, honestly, it was it was fantastic. It really um, launched my career and um, made me really interested in you know pursuing a path in finance. Um, so from there, I was at Morgan Stanley. Um, I was a consumer on the trading floor and I was there for a few years. Um, I worked on, I had just massive exposure because it's Morgan Stanley. So while I was there, um, you know, I got to work on Michael Kors, Groupon, uh, bread, just tons of um, uh, really, really big IPOs. I worked on Words with Friends, the Singa. Um, and i decided that i wanted to go to this magical mythical place called the buy side which at the time i remember i wasn't a packaged i wasn't a packaged uh finance person i'm very scrappy and a kind of a self-made finance person um and everyone just kept talking about the, the buy side and i was like what's the buy side? Yeah, they said, that's the better side to be on where, you know, things are relaxed and you get to call the shots. So I was like, oh, I have to get there. How do I get there? Um, So everyone said, you got to go back to business school. You have to get an MBA. And I said okay. I was never planning on even getting, uh, you know, a grad degree, um, but found myself at Brandeis. um, And I did, um, I have an MBA in finance and economics and a minor in social policy. And I did, I did my degree in about a year and a half. Um, I was always much more of a worker than an academic. Um, I school, I liked school, but school is more of a way for me to leverage what I really wanted to do after school, whereas some people are, they're pure academics, you know, they love, they eat it up. And for me, I eat up the real world. I just like love the environment. So my last um, semester, um, I did an internship down in New York, um, but I should back up. Before that, I worked for a hedge fund, actually. Um, I had I was introduced by a family friend um, to work at this quant hedge fund that was run by a senior engineer um, with many, many years of experience and one of the um, founders of Goldman Sachs private equity. And I got to help back test this future trading platform and kind of use my coding skills, which was great. Um, I was heavily introverted. And that Wait, was kind of- Wait, hold Coding
0: skills, what? Coding when, skills. When I, did, I wait, learned wait, five wait,
1: different languages. <laughs>
0: wait, when did you when did you develop the coding skill set?
1: Um, At Parsons, believe it or not, they make you take a coding language, and for us, it's processing. Processing is graphic designer's code, and so is um, processing, HTML, SQL. These are all languages that you use for building websites in the background, and if you know one language, it really unlocks your path to another uh, language, especially if you know the root. Um, It's equivalent to if you know Spanish, um, French is suddenly easier.
0: Got it. It Okay. So back testing uh, strategies and you were there for a year or so. And then, and then you were saying that then you went, what was the next step?
1: Um, yes, yeah, so it was backtesting strategies, um, and, you know, I, it was one side of the alternative market, and people was like, you know, you're here, you're on the buy side, you got here, you're, congratulations, and I went, good, well, the buy side's really introverted, I'm a, I'm a true extrovert, and I want to use my quant skills, but I also want to do something where I can interact with people on a daily basis, and they said, oh, well, you're on the wrong side of the buy side, you want to be in the private equity side of things, and I went, <laughs> What's private equity? Um, so they basically, you know, uh, taught me a lot of. Um, I had a very, very strong male mentorship, um, and a lot of people taught me, including my my and uh, my now husband, who was in private equity, who said, Oh, well, you know, private equity is buying and selling companies, and you know, you get to make a difference post close with them. And I said, Sign me up. How do I get there? And they said, Well, you have to go back into I banking. And I said, Okay, well, I can do that. Um, so I ended up in New York at a merchant bank called Corporate Fuel Advisors and I did an internship with them to really learn the ropes um, and to also kind of put the stamp of approval of, hey, I, I understand, you know, what modeling is. I have a Rolodex and whatnot. And I seemed to be a natural at it. I mean, it was something that, like, I felt like I was at home. I was like, this is what I want to do. I want to do this for a private equity shop. So meanwhile, I was at Brandeis, and um, I was in a private equity class. And um, I met this uh, GP, Gary First, who um, was the founder of Generation Equity Capital, or still is, and um, we built a relationship. And every time he would come down to New York, we'd grab coffee, we'd chat and, you know, he eventually was like, you know, I'm looking for, um, you know, a new hire and I'm looking to, you know, build, you know, a more robust team. Would you be interested? Would you be interested in coming back to Boston? And I said, Oh my goodness yes this is like what i've been waiting for so gary gave me my you know my break in private equity and um i was with him for a long time like three and a half years almost and um ended up seeing a lot of things that i loved in private equity and also ends up seeing a lot of things that i thought could be done differently um, from someone who didn't have that traditional background so i started to kind of mesh all of my experiences together into kind of what i felt was like the new wave of private equity and eventually it was going to be a paradigm shift. I ended up leaving, um, you know, to, to kind of explore, um, you know, potentially starting my own shop. And the branding came later. I really concentrated more on having the portfolio companies first so that I felt like I deserved to have the branding, if that makes sense.
0: What motivates you? Because your background is really diverse. And I think some of the things we were talking about before this call is I think you're you know, also know sign language. I do. You <laughs> speak Mandarin. You've run a marathon. You've done a charity Mandarin. boxing. Broken it, Mandarin. <laughs> um, done a charity boxing event. You know, mm-hmm. you just you have this really um, diverse set of interests. So mm-hmm. I'm just kind of curious to know, like what, what motivates you to live the life that you are doing?
1: Sure. Yeah. So I, um, I always want to be happy, and I think that that's one thing that a lot of people in a capitalist society such as ours kind of throw to the wayside. And you know, for me, I can't be the most successful version of myself if I'm not happy, and I think that's true for a lot of people. So I always follow, um, you know, I know really quickly what I'm good at, what I'm not good at. I'm a very introspective person, and I have a pretty high EQ, so I'm able to kind of couple those things and say, you know, this isn't working for me. Why am I staying here? I should be going to where I think I can be the best at what I can be, because it's for me, I want to be top of my field, and you can't be top of your field if you're not passionate, you don't work, you know, 24-7 on what you're doing, because it takes just a tremendous amount of effort and work to make something look effortless. Um, and also you have to be intellectually curious at the end of the day or else you're never really going to grow. So that really motivates me and always motivated me, Um, you know, and I have a very positive outlook. I'm a very hopeful person and, um, you know, wanted to take that kind of, uh, I guess, attitude with me as I went into a a very uh, old guard um, male-dominated sector.
0: How, what shaped who you are, that intellectual curiosity um, where are you from? What's the family background?
1: Sure, it's, a, it's actually a great question. So um, I come from a long line of entrepreneurs. Um, so my family, uh, they're actually in the fashion industry, believe it or not, um, back in the 70s and the 80s. And um, my grandfather, father and uncle always worked together. Um, they actually all, all know how to sew. They're master seamsters. And they were in women's sportswear down in Manhattan in the garment district. Um, the company is called Cottage Tailor. And obviously has since gone under, um, but before then, you know, they, um, they were in the fashion business and it was a very rough business to be in, especially in the eighties. The and then in the early nineties, um, my uncle uh, had just graduated from Harvard and um, noticed a lot of trends in tech and telecom. And he brought that back to my grandfather and my father and said, you know, we can make a business out of this. I have a really interesting way to basically do uh, voice over the IP. And this was in the early nineties when no one really knew what that was and, you know, created priority call management. So then fast forward, the 99, I believe their company was sold to Bell Atlantic, which is now AT&T. And um, they did it again through a company called Acme Packet. Um, Acme Packet sells packets of data, as you can imagine. And it was actually a public company and it traded on the NYSE and, um, you know, ended up being sold to Oracle. Um, so they just basically made uh, made things appear out of thin air and saw interesting, uh trends in basically uh you know in the economy and the macroeconomy that they knew that they could capitalize on um and then they're doing it again now with 128 technologies with cybersecurity and I always saw kind of that family bond and that drive, you know, to be, how do you be a family, but also be a corporation at the same time? How do you balance that act? And then at the same time, how do you persevere in times where, you know, there's a there's a recession, things are going well, things aren't going well, um, but you always have to have that that patient hopefulness. Um, and at the same time, a lot of people to back you, um, you know, who hear your story over and over, and you have to take criticism, you have to take, you know, people say, oh, you're amazing, that your ad doesn't get too big. And, you know, whatnot. So those are really my mentors. Um, I've had a very strong, um, you know, mentorship in my family from that. And that kind of motivated me to go off and do my own thing because entrepreneurship's in my blood.
0: That's really interesting because in all of these episodes that I've done, I kind of see like a recurring theme of the founders. They had some type of exposure to other entrepreneurs and how that motivated them. What um, Do you think you're employable?
1: Probably not. I'm probably not. (laughs) You know, in fact, I'm I'm almost certain that I'm not, um, because honestly, I have taken such a uh, distinct path. I'm probably never going to get a job again. Um, I'm just going to be working for myself forever. Um, I think it's really hard to go back into corporate America, but I think it's also really hard. We have a lot of, you know, very diverse, um, interest and also kind of visionary ways about you where a lot of people think, God, what are you doing? Like, are you crazy? Like you, you get that a lot, honestly, when you're an entrepreneur, I'm sure that you've gotten that as well, you know, being an entrepreneur yourself and people go, what are you doing today? You know, and then two or three years later, it's like, Hey, look, something's happening. Yeah, something's <laughs> happened.
0: But then I've realized now in year four of entrepreneurship, that the reason why I do this is not at all for the, the uh, the title of entrepreneur, the title of you know running my own thing, that doesn't matter. Like wh- what really matters to me in the core of entrepreneurship is that I can execute on the ideas that I want to when I want to. And I can pursue the creative ends that I want to. And we can move at the speed that we want to. And the flexibility to work where we want, um, I don't know if when we want that really is applicable right now because it's seven days a week, but it doesn't feel like seven days a week. It It's the passion. And, um, you know, I think it's just been this really interesting journey um, and to realize that maybe I am completely unemployable and uh, maybe I'm sealing my fate here. But, but that's actually, that kind of brings me to another point, which is Do you believe, or maybe to what extent do you believe, that entrepreneurs need to burn the boats?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that it has to almost happen. You have to have these ups and downs. I mean, sometimes I feel borderline bipolar, to be honest with you, you know, where one day you're super up and another day you're like, oh my God, this is never going to work. What am I doing? (laughs) And I think that it comes out of – a lot of strife and, um, challenges that you come up with the best ideas when you're pretty hopeless and you think this isn't going to work because when things have always been going very well for me, um, I'm not very creative. I'm just kind of status quo and things are going, you know, okay. And then COVID happens and I'm like, oh my God, I'm fighting fires with my portfolio companies. I'm figuring out, you know, how am I going to raise a fund in this environment and whatnot. And then you, you get this survival entrepreneurial instinct that, that keeps you kind of going through things, um, but also it also uh, gives you this creative ability to think around, you know, problems so that you can actually still get there, which I think is the most fascinating thing. I mean, I think finance is it's a psychological journey. Um, it's all about psychology. I've always been very fascinated um, by the idea of a psychology. I come from a long line of psychologists, by the way. Oh, yeah. um, I, my dad is a psych major, my grandmother is a psychologist. And, um, you know, I always am trained to think about human uh, emotions, the experimentation behind situations like COVID, um, the social experiments. And um, that's how I think. And, you know, this journey has been, you know, crazy. And I think that you need to almost have these moments in order to come out on top and really prove out your model. Because if you can make it through this, then you can make it through anything.
0: How um, how emotionally prepared did you feel for this? And I ask that because four years ago when I started Debt Maven, I didn't know what was hitting me. And the emotional journey was so much more severe. Now, four years later, It's almost like I recognize it, but I feel like an objective distance to it and I could recognize what is happening. And there's almost a better sense of being able to manage that emotional journey up and down in entrepreneurship. Yeah, so what's it been like for you?
1: COVID in general, you mean, or just-
0: Starting the business, going through this, the ups and the downs, you know, now you're what, four years into this? Two years, four years? Um, Mm -hmm. So what's it been like for you?
1: It's been a whirlwind. I mean, you start and you really aren't sure where this is gonna go and you have a roadmap in your head and you go, okay, this is what it's going to look like. And it ends up looking nothing like that six months in. And then you're like, okay, I'm gonna pivot and then it ends up not looking nothing like that. And then you're gonna pivot again and you keep pivoting and pivoting until you get kind of what um, your version is. And along the way, you have these roadblocks. I liken it to a video game. I'm a huge gamer and I liken it to like being in a leveled Mario, uh, you know, in Luigi game where you're going through the levels and it's like, oh, gotta dodge the mushroom, gotta dodge the bullet, you know, gotta jump over this. Then I gotta save the princess. And that's really what it is, you know? And it's really getting to different levels and i feel like i'm halfway through the game at this point before i can get you know just a little bit further and you have to be able to pivot and be nimble because a lot of people They don't do that they're very rigid and they say it's my way or the highway this is how this is going to look and if this isn't it then then i'm out and a lot of people also they don't have the they have a fear of failure Um, i fail every day and i think that most entrepreneurs do and whether or not they're willing to admit it um, you need to be okay to fail um, in order to get to the next point because if you never try because you're too scared then you're never going to make your vision work
0: there are a couple points here one is that fine line between deciding when to pivot versus persevere and, you know, knowing, no, we're going to stick with this service line, this product line, and we're going to get deeper into this as opposed to getting the outside feedback, like, Hey, COVID hits, you're no longer making chemicals. Now you're doing hand sanitizer or, you know, like oil and gas chemicals. Now you're doing hand sanitizer. Um, (laughs) Yeah. We, 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 I just did an interview with that and the company successfully pivoted through that. What's, how do you think that you have changed as a leader? You know, now you have what, eight or nine people on the team. If you look at where you are at now and kind of leading a team and working with management versus three years ago.
1: I have grown so much. In fact, it's funny because I always thought of myself. You have a vision of what you think you are and then the vision of what everybody sees you as and it was it's a real aha moment where I find that I'm, I'm a really good CEO. Um, I'm really good at managing top line, big picture items. Um, but then when you start to get a team, I was like, oh God, it'll be fine. I'm going to manage all these people. It's going to be great. Horrible manager. I was, Honestly, like seriously. I, I, when I first started out, I was like, I wasn't even sure. Like, what do I tell everyone to do? Do they just know what to do? You know, and then I had to balance my own life and also managing them. And then my business partner stepped in and was like, no, no let me show you the way. So he trained me and how to be a really good manager. And I will be forever grateful to him for that. And I think that, it's very interesting because the first six months, um, you know, you gel as a team basically, and it takes a very long time to do that. And um, having to manage people who are bright eyed and bushy tailed, but have all of these questions, um, you know, at the same time, was challenging. So now I have scheduled time with each individual as well as a pipeline call every Monday that we go on to debrief um, and I'm always available, but I find that they don't reach out to me because they think that I'm too busy, which I probably am, but I will take their call. Um, So instead, I need designated time on my calendar for each and every one of my interns, my associates, my analysts to make sure that um, they feel like they're getting the time that they deserve, but also their questions answered. Um, But I would say that I still have a lot, uh, you know, runway still where I have to learn how to be a good manager and, you know, not just, you know, a good CEO.
0: Did you have to learn how to manage people and i ask that because so much of like starting 51 labs you're doing everything and then you need to get in the position where you train other people but that day those hours that go by and by like god i gotta execute on my client work is it worth even training and then the person's gone after three or six months for one reason or another but it goes into the other thing which is well if you have the capital, then you hire an experienced team. But if you have never done this before and you don't have the capital, then you take you know, the people who are hungry and just want the experience. But there's that dynamic between spending the time to train people versus like executing on what you have to do to pay the bills.
1: At first I felt like, you know, okay, this is gonna be something it's a self starter role. But then I realized that A, I really wanna train them both on, you know, modeling and the deal sourcing side because they're gonna leave me reviews. Um, they might not be reviews like on Yelp, but they're gonna tell all of their friends and their network. And you know, my my smart interns and people who are interviewing for these roles, they want to talk to other interns and you know, talk about their experience. And you know, I want a glowing recommendation every single time so that I can keep attracting top talent who feels like they've gotten something out of the internship and that they've learned. But I also want them to get to a point where, um, you know, I don't bring in people who who don't have any experience. But I want to get them to a point. You where they feel like they can help to run these deals um you know as i give them a little bit more so i'm looking for people who basically learn really quickly um you know are are self-starters in that sense um so that i don't have to do as much and then a few of them i mean I've, i've ended up hiring them you know as my associates and as my um uh, analysts so that's always you know a distinct possibility but i completely agree with you i mean i think that you know there's kind of a fine line and i've experimented with both but i found that training them to their full potential and having them feel like they really got an excellent internship out of it helps me in the long run because they end up at like mckinsey and jp morgan and duffin and phelps and then they can help me if i need a favor from one of those firms so yeah
0: What is kind of one of the requests that you have to maybe some of the people who might be watching or listening in, um, maybe at different funds or whatever, you know, what, what are some things that people can be thinking about for you?
1: Yeah, so so we're going out. Um, we're going to raise a fund. Um, I think we're probably going to raise you know around 100 million. Um, we've actually had a lot of traction from family offices in particular, um, and that's kind of who we've gone to: small pension funds and family offices. We're a little small for an endowments um, at this point, but uh, we're really looking for you know individuals who are looking to seat us um, as a first-time fund, um, but also you know willing to um, you know put in a little bit of effort and mentorship along the way. Um, um, you know, to, to feel like they have protected their downside risk with a new fund, but at the same time, you know, help us grow um, because we've got just an incredible pipeline, you know, of opportunities that, that we're working on. We actually have a um, proprietary algorithm that offshoots um, just a numerous, a copious uh, amount of, of pipeline opportunities. We have about 15 to 20 in our pipeline of actionable opportunities at any one time within our three verticals, and we also have a trend spotting algorithm that helps to trend Um, out what's going to happen maybe three or five months, you know, in advance. And, you know, a couple of these trends that we've looked at have included telemedicine and remote working. This was back in like February, you know, and people just really weren't interested in or really didn't know what was happening or where the economy was going. Um, So those are low-hanging fruit opportunities in the investment market that we can really capture. And I think that, um, you know, having these backers um, to help um, so that we can jump on these opportunities and be the first mover in so that we can pay a lower valuation would just be tremendous for us.
0: So on the my final question is, can you tell your marathon story?
1: Oh, absolutely. In fact, that's, it's a juicy one. (laughs) (laughs) I raised money for Dana Farber and I was very happy about it. I go, oh, it's easy. You know, I'm a fundraiser. It's like a quarter of what I do. Uh, So that was the easy part. Um, I had no problem asking people for money, especially for cancer research. So I I train, I do the whole thing. I'm like, I'm in great shape. This is great. So day of the marathon, it was absolutely torrential downpours it was every three miles it was torrential pounding rain there was a thunderstorm there was a hailstorm. there were 30 mile an hour winds and it was about 32 33 degrees out which is very undesirable so the starting line i literally i was drenched by the starting line and i remember going there i'm like i don't know how i'm gonna do this and I, i just something something survival instinctual kind of caught up with me and i went god you know i I can do this because I've gone through a lot of other stuff in my life and it's just 26.2 miles I can do this. Um so on mile 3 I saw people like breaking down and crying like grown men. They were like oh, I'm not going to do this and then they they bail and I'm just like oh my god. This is mile 3. What's happening? <laughs> I keep I keep going and then I see some ROTC people And they're like in their boots, their gear, and I'm like, wow, if they can do this, you know, I mean, I can do this too. And then I think that that moment, it was around mile 21, where Heartbreak Hill, where everyone starts to just completely lose it. I was pretty numb at that point, and I was carrying about 15 pounds of water that had saturated my clothing. Then I didn't even realize it, because I was just in survival mode. And I was just like, I don't know if I can go on. And then... I saw um, a blind man who was running and had his coach with him and they were running together tandem. They they hold like a rope and I'll never forget that. I actually, I started crying for absolutely no reason at mile 21 and I was like, oh my God, like if they can do this and this coach is going to make sure that this man crosses the finish line. And if this blind man, you know, can, can do this and he can feel, but it's probably exacerbated for him because his senses, you know, can, can feel all of this much more than, than I can do this too and that's really what got me through it and I just kind of let my brain turn off and thought of different things. Um my my earphones you couldn't hear a thing because it was pounding rain. I didn't listen to music for the whole 26 miles, which I had planned. So that's kind of an example of like, you know uh something where you thought it was gonna go one way and you just had to completely pivot and you know that was uh you know you you, the strategy was i had no strategy and it was just basically my you know instincts getting me through
0: i think this is fascinating because it is really highlighting the importance of role models and it doesn't have to be like this formal mentorship you know sometimes just seeing but seeing somebody doing something that you don't know if you can do just helps you go to that next goal post to the next goal post this is fantastic well i appreciate the time with this and looking forward to connecting soon
1: thanks so much this is great right. see ya thanks. bye